0: Well, here we are this morning. I wasn't expecting to preach this morning, but this pulpit supply we lined up <clears throat> fell through. Forgot all about it. So I'm going to do it twice today, the Lord willing. And uh, I'll be sitting most of the time. I can't sit forever and I can't stand very long, so I'll be maybe up and down. But that's all right. So let's turn to chapter Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. The first part of this chapter, up until the verses we consider, verses 14 through 16, speak of the suffering and the work of the servant of the Lord. The concept servant of the Lord is found throughout the book of Isaiah. Sometimes it refers to Jesus Christ. Sometimes it refers to the nation of Israel. Sometimes it seems to be blurred, and you're not sure exactly what's being referred to, and that's the case in this first part of this chapter. But the focus is the servant of the Lord or the servant of Jehovah. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from far. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft, In his quiver hath he hid me. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught. And in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work is with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him Through Israel, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to restore the preserved of Israel, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Now that all seems to apply to Christ, doesn't it? Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to, who, uh, to him whom man despiseth, to him who the nations abhorreth, to a servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, Go forth. To them that are in darkness, show thyselves, they shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in a high in high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor the sun smite them, for he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them, and I will make all my mountains away of a level plain, and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from far, and lo, these shall and these from the north and from the west, and those from the land of Sinem, sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people, and will have mercy upon his afflicted. And now the next three verses are our text, and that's as far as we're going to read. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forsake, forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. That's the word of God before us this morning. This passage is found in the second main section of the prophecy of Isaiah. In the first 39 chapters, Isaiah, who was a prophet of God to Judah, warned Judah of her sins and warned that if she didn't repent, there would come the judgment of God upon her. Then, chapters 40 through the end, chapter 66, Judah changed... uh, Isaiah changes his message and prophesies Judah's captivity in Babylon and the judgment of God upon her for her sins, but also promises restoration and a return to Jerusalem and to the land of promise and to God's blessings. It's in that second section we find this passage. What's interesting is that in this last section, everything Isaiah speaks about is presented as though it's been an accomplished fact. It doesn't speak of what will, but what has been. And that has led many Bible scholars who have a low view of the Bible to say there are two Isaiahs, the first author or writer. Isaiah wrote the first 39 verses, chapters, warning Israel of her sin. And the second Isaiah then reflects after the Babylonian captivity and the return to to Judea about what happened. And so there are really two Isaiahs. But that's wrong. We must understand that there is only one writer of the book of Isaiah. He was a prophet of God who labored in Judah, according to the first verse of this book, during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Even though this last section of the book is presented as telling what happened instead of what will happen, it nevertheless is a prophecy, and is written in this way, as though it were accomplished fact, exactly because... The future events are guaranteed by the counsel and the providence of God. And now we get to our text. Israel, identified here as Zion, has a complaint. They're in Babylon, far away from the land of promise. They have a complaint. The Lord has forgotten me. The Lord has forsaken us. And the answer of the Lord through Isaiah to this complaint is this. Can a woman forget her sucking child? That she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Can that really happen? You're my child. I gave birth to you. Can a woman forget her sucking child? Well, they may forget on occasion, but I will not. I will never forget you. I will never forsake you. Behold, look at I have carved into my palms of my hands your name, so that whatever I carry out by, in my providence and, and, and by my hand, and that's everything, you're always before me. You're always in view. Your name is carved into the palms of my hand. And therefore, before me continually are the walls of the city of Jerusalem. I know they're torn down, they're rubble, but I have in view these walls being restored, where you will live with me in the joy of my fellowship and blessing. It's been said that this is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, expressions of God's love for His people in the Old Testament, the love of a mother for her sucking child. Great comfort this was for Israel in captivity, and great comfort for us, too, as we face many struggles, church-wise, family-wise, individually. I call your attention to this passage under the theme Graven Upon the Lord's Palms. First of all, a glorious reality. Secondly, a wonderful promise. And thirdly, a blessed comfort. The passage begins with a complaint of Judah. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. As I indicated, This places, in prophecy, Judah and the captivity of Babylon. And notice the name given to Judah, Zion. Zion hath said. Now, Zion was the mountain upon which the temple was erected in the heart of the city of Jerusalem. It was there on Mount Zion that the people of God went time and again to worship the Lord to bring their sacrifices, to receive the blessing of the Lord. It was only through Zion and the house of God on Zion that the people of God in the Old Testament enjoyed the blessings of God's covenant. Judah is now uh, dressed as or referred to as Zion to emphasize God's special covenant people who enjoyed his covenant blessings on that holy mount, decade, century after century. But now Zion is in captivity. Under the hordes of the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, the walls of the city were breached. And the whole city was destroyed. The temple was broken down. The walls were broken down. Anything that could burn was burned. Jerusalem and the holy temple was nothing more than a pile of rubble and burnt rocks. And the people of God were in Babylon in captivity on account of their sin. And so Isaiah speaks here in prophecy of the complaint of Zion. The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Now to forsake someone means to abandon them, to leave them behind, to fend for themselves. It presupposes a close relationship, a friendship, where you lived together, you worked together, you you had each other's back, you looked out for each other. You have that in the close relationship of marriage, where God joins two into one. That's the way it should be in marriage. You live together. You look out for each other. You help each other. That same relationship exists between parents and children, at least it ought to, where parents especially look out for their children and live with them. But there are other relations too where there is such a close bond To forsake that relationship is to leave that person behind. To fend for themselves without your help, without your assistance, without your presence. And then you also forget them. If you abandon someone, they're out of sight, out of mind, And your thoughts and attention are turned elsewhere. It's a terrible thing when that happens in marriage. Or when parents do that to their children, or vice versa. It's a terrible thing. And this is what Judah thought Jehovah God had done. By allowing Jerusalem and the Holy Temple... On Mount Zion to be destroyed, and now they were far from the holy land of promise in in captivity. Wasn't Jehovah God, their God of their covenant, who for centuries lived with them, blessed them in Jerusalem on Mount Zion? But the Lord had allowed Mount Zion to be destroyed. The people had been completely ripped away from their land and and displaced in other places. How bitter that was to them. We sang that in the psalm just before the congregational prayer or afterwards. Psalm 137. Listen, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. This is Israel, Judah in captivity. By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. There they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And their response is, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? The true people of God were devastated in captivity. Surely the Lord had forsaken them. Their God had forgotten them. And that's often our complaint, can be when things go what appears to be against us. Persecution. The history of the church has been a history of persecution. Right here in this time, in this land, we don't experience much. Oh, we're marginalized, we're mocked, we're ridiculed. Maybe our careers will be derailed because of our Christian principles. But there are places today... In third-world countries dominated by Hinduism and, Muslim, and Islam, where the people of God have been murdered, they're in prison, they're beaten, they're homeless, they're desperate. And that's been the case again and again throughout the history of the church. And we're coming rapidly to the day of the Antichrist. When that will be? Will it be in my, your lifetime? I don't know. Could be. There will be a horrible persecution where the church will almost be wiped out. And very easily, the people of God will cry out, Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? You've forgotten us. The church can say that too when there's turmoil in the church, when the church is devastated with schism. That's happened repeatedly too. 1953, our churches were devastated by a departure of over, over, well over most of our ministers and over half of our people, and we're struggling with the aftermath of a schism right now. And although it's not a major disruption, it's more of a splinter. And nevertheless, it affects many of us, it divides families, it hurts. Lord, have you forsaken us? Have you forgotten us? And then on an individual level, we have large families, Christian schools. We struggle to make ends meet. And that struggle is hard. We entered into marriage with expectations that weren't met. And there's a troubled marriage, and we're doing our best to maintain the marriage, but it's a, it's a terrible, terrible grind. Or family members, sons and daughters, give us great grief and sorrow by, by their sinful behavior. There are those who suffer with depression and anxiety. Lord, have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten me? The Lord answers Judah and us in our complaint. Verse 15, can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Isaiah speaks here of a mother who bears forth from her womb a son. How fierce is the love Of a mother. How precious, how beautiful is the love of a mother to the child from her womb? My wife and I were blessed with nine children. What struck me after a while is that another child comes, I'm happy, but I don't have the bond that my wife had. She carried that child in her womb. From the very moment of birth, before birth, that bond was there fierce love. I had to learn to get acquainted with that child. That love came, but it was different than the love of a mother. It's been said that long after others have given up on a rebellious child, there's still a love of the mother that will not forsake or forget. I remember earlier in my ministry, there was a man. He was married. He had difficulties, mental illness. He said, no matter what, I know my mother will still love me. She'll still love me. That's the love of a mother. In addition to that, Isaiah speaks here of the son of the womb, at her mother's, at his mother's breast. In other words, a little tiny infant who, who completely depends upon mother for food, for care, father too, but that mother feeds from her breast. What compassion! I look back in my own situation with my family. I'm making a confession here. I don't know, maybe you men are the same, but I could easily let a child cry (sighs) at night, not my wife, that fierce, fierce love. Getting up at night, staying up at night is a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. The love of a mother for her child. And now the Lord questions can a woman like that forget the child that comes from her womb, that's a sucking child, so that she has no compassion upon him? That's a rhetorical question to emphasize that there is no greater love for a child than a mother for her child. It's unique, it's special. And she is filled with great compassion for her sucking child when there is trouble and distress for him and would rather forfeit her own health and life for her child. That's the idea here. And so the Lord says... What about that? Can such a mother forsake her child? Well, he says once in a while it does. And we see that today, don't we? It's rare. And sadly, with the decline of morals in our country, it's happening more often, especially a young single mother can't handle a baby, foolishly abandons it, neglects it, almost throws it away. That can happen, said the Lord, but I will never do that to you. My love for you, Zion. That was Judah. That's us. My love for Zion is the fierce love of a mother for the child of her womb, a sucking child. That's how strong my love is. Now there are those who like to say, well... We're talking about Mother God, and that's wrong. The Bible reveals God reveals himself as Father. And we are taught to pray our Father, which is in heaven, not our Mother. But nevertheless, there is with our Heavenly Father that deep, powerful love, that special love that a mother has for the son of her womb. And to emphasize that fact, and that in that love he will never forget or forsake his people, the Lord informed Israel and us, he's graven our name on the palms of his hand. You know, my oldest daughter would write things on her hand. Sometimes in the back of the hand, sometimes in the front. What's that for? Well, I I don't want to forget it. It's always there, see? She wrote it in ink. So she wouldn't forget it. In much the same way, the Lord says, I have taken your name, the church, Zion. And in that name, Zion, are the names of every member of that church. And I've got them on the palm of my hand. And that means, therefore, that as I carry out my counsel and direct all things in history by the power of my hand, your name is there. It's always there in front of me. And I've carved it into the palms of my hands. My daughter would write ink, and pretty soon it it was gone, washed off. The Lord says, no, I've carved your name in the palms of my hand so that no matter what I do, where I do it, when I do it, you're there. I see you. I'm reminded of you. You're never away from my thoughts. I will never, ever abandon you or forget you. Now, of course, that has to be understood figuratively, doesn't it? The Lord doesn't have hands like we do. Our hands are only human, earthly pictures of a reality in God, which is called God's hand. By this figure, the Lord expresses this reality that He has, first of all, from all eternity, chosen the church to be His beloved. With whom he will live in intimate covenant friendship and fellowship. They're his people, the apple of his eye. And for the sake of his covenant, he has ordained everything in history. Everything that he carries out in history according to his eternal plan is designed for one purpose for our God to live with us to dwell with us that we may enjoy him forever in covenant fellowship and so great is that love and that purpose that he has even committed his own son to come in our flesh to bear the punishment of our sins so that this can take place that's the reality and so It's as though God has carved your name in the name of the church on the palm of his hands so that in everything he does, he's reminded of you, he sees you, he cares for you, never leaving, never forgetting, never abandoning. That's the first point. Now, there is contained in here a promise. After stating those things, the Lord says, Thy walls are continually before me. Thy walls are continually before me. Those refer to the walls of Jerusalem. Now, when... The Lord here, through Isaiah, speaks of the walls of Jerusalem that are ever before him. He's not referring to the walls built by David and by Solomon and the temple built by Solomon. They were no more. They had been brought down, taken down by the Babylonian hordes and were nothing but a pile of rubble. That's not what he's referring to. The walls that are ever before the Lord are the walls that will be erected once again and in which God will live and covenant fellowship and friendship with His people restored. Those walls were before His eyes. And before him, in his sight, even as the original walls were built, even as those walls were destroyed by Babylon, the Lord always had before him walls erected again with a more blessed eternal covenant fellowship with his people in Jesus Christ. And that constituted a promise, didn't it? He's going to lead his people back out of captivity, back to Canaan. Walls will be erected again, and a temple will be renewed and built again, and they will dwell once again in beautiful covenant fellowship with God. That was a promise implied here. I I, I see new walls. They're ever before me. So when and how was this promise fulfilled? It was fulfilled initially under 70 years later under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel led 50,000 people back to Judea. And even though they had a hard time, they, they were, had to be encouraged, they had to be rebuked, they, they rebuilt the temple and they rejoiced. It wasn't at all like the Temple of Solomon, but it was a temple. And then Nehemiah came later, who was the king's cupbearer, who was appointed governor of the, of, of the province. And he was amazed. The walls are in shambles. So he led the people in a very short time to rebuild the walls to make the church the, the, the nation safe. And so the people of God came back, and they were able to enjoy In the secured walls of Jerusalem and in the temple of Mount Zion, the blessings of God as before. However, that's not the final and complete fulfillment of this promise. The Lord spoke of those walls that are ever before him. That refers not to temporary walls, not a temporary city, not a temporary temple, but a permanent one, an everlasting one. And those walls and the city and the temple erected by, Zer- by Zerubbabel and under Nehemiah were not that. They didn't even compare in beauty and power and strength to that under Solomon. And they didn't last very long either. Seventy years after Christ's birth, 70 AD, the Roman armies came and destroyed the temple again and destroyed the walls, left them nothing but shambles and rubble piles of rocks. And so, those walls of Jerusalem that were restored under Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, even though they were an initial fulfillment, looked ahead to to a greater fulfillment and to more permanent walls. And they looked ahead to the new Jerusalem and, and the new creation with eternal walls. And you read of that in Revelation chapter 21. Listen how this starts. And I, John saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, that's where we are now, and there was no, no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle or tent of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. New Jerusalem. in the new creation where God will dwell with his people in covenant friendship and fellowship as never before. And you go on in this chapter and it talks about the walls of the new Jerusalem. Verses 10 and following. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a great wall, and high, and had seven, twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And names written thereon, which are the names of the tribes of the children of Israel. And then it goes on to describe those gates. Those are the walls the Lord ever had before him. Now again, we mustn't think of those walls in a physical sense. This is symbolism. Belongs to that which eye has not seen, or ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man to conceive. We don't know exactly what those walls are going to be. But those are the walls that were ever before the Lord. They were before the Lord in eternity. They were before the Lord in captivity. They were before the Lord when he sent Christ to the cross. And through the work of Christ, these walls are erected in heaven as the exalted Lord. I suppose you could say, as in David's day and Solomon's day, they're still being erected. Because the people of God aren't always there, aren't all there. But when the Lord comes again and all things are made new these eternal walls in the new Jerusalem will stand in beauty. And then the promise implied here in this passage will be fulfilled. So, comfort, that's the final point here. With a view to these walls and the everlasting covenant, God sovereignly works all As I indicated, when God eternally decided in his counsel all things that shall exist or take place, these walls and what they represent, and the fellowship of his people in these walls were uppermost in his mind. And he ordained all things to the end that these walls may be established. And as I indicated, he sent his Son, who stands at the, count, at the center of his plan and counsel to the cross, that he might establish these walls. And to accomplish and to build these walls with all their perfect fellowship and salvation, Jesus Christ, God, through Jesus Christ, works all things. and that's our comfort as indicated often often it looks as though we question as the lord has the lord forsaken us Has the lord forgotten us sometimes the church questions that in fierce persecution in schism when the peace of the church is taken away, families are torn apart, has the, Lord, has the Lord forsaken us? Has he forgotten us? And when family issues come, trouble in marriage, wayward children, infighting, where is the Lord? Has he forgotten us? And when our life, individually, is one of deep, deep sorrow, loss of loved ones, leaving us devastated, debilitating illness, crushing depression, and we don't know how to get out of it. Has the Lord forsaken us? No. Your name is carved on the palms of his hands. You're ever before him. And as he works all things, prosperity and adversity for church or family or individuals and wisdom, he's working with one purpose in mind, in Jesus Christ to erect the walls of the new Jerusalem and to prepare you and me and the church to live there eternally with Him. Even when we suffer, even when it looks as though He's forgotten us, He hasn't. He's working to accomplish this beautiful, beautiful salvation of us. And that brings us peace by faith in him.